For the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and I think it's fitting to start the book of Mark kind of with a story. Some of you may or may not know this about me, but I actually don't like change when it comes to some things, particularly food. Food is one of those areas where I know what's good, I know what I like, let's not try nothing else. (laughs) Somebody feel me. So one of my favorite foods in all the world is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't know if I just because I grew up poor or if that's just the best I had. I don't know what it is about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but that's one of my favorite foods. And I remember getting to college and I saw someone make a peanut butter jelly sandwich and I was like, that's wrong. And they're like, hey, you want one? I was like, nope, because that's wrong, right? That's for me and my house. We will make peanut butter jelly sandwiches the right way. This new and innovative way to make a peanut butter jelly sandwich, although I resisted, has become the only way I will eat them now. The change has been using strawberry jelly instead of grape jelly. Can somebody say amen? amen. See, if y'all still on grape jelly, y'all ain't know yet. Y'all didn't know. So next week, that's going to be the one thing people remember for my sermon is the grape jelly. It's not the point of the sermon. It is a helpful illustration to show that new things, although new and scary, can be better. New things can be better, and my old way of making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches was good, but then there came along a better way, and by the grace of the Lord Jesus, I accepted strawberry jelly into my heart, and all right, I'm done. I'm done. Story's over. We're going to see Jesus do something very similar. Throughout the whole time through the book of Mark, you didn't really notice it because Mark isn't drawing it to the forefront, but there's been this brewing tension between the religious leaders and Jesus. Once again, the series title that we're walking through for the first several chapters of the book of Mark is Jesus More Than a Man. And so Mark is zooming in on Jesus, and everyone else is a background character. So we haven't been made paid attention to it just yet, but you may see some slight friction and tension between the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and other ruling leaders at the time. And Jesus is going to push them over the edge today. Today, this passage is the turning point in the entire book of Mark. Because Jesus is not going to allow people to be apathetic about him. He's not going to allow people to be undecided about him. He's going to paint all those who hear his message into a corner, making them do something with him and with his message. So we're going to break up Mark chapter 2, verses 18. We're going to go all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And we're going to break this passage up into three distinct sections. We're going to see three new things. One is a new pattern. Second is a new purpose, and lastly, a new plan. A new pattern, a new purpose, and a new plan. Let's look at a new pattern of fasting in verses 18 through 22. Read along silently as I read aloud. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Pause there for a second. Now, the the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. Hey, everybody else is fasting. We're fasting. John's disciples are fasting. Why aren't your followers fasting? And so Jesus answered their immediate question of why aren't they fasting in a very simple way. It's like it's not the time to fast. Now, fasting may be a new discipline for you, but fasting is basically depriving yourself of food to represent a longing for something better than food. In the Old Testament, we see fasting in 2 Samuel as David fasted and wept over his child who was dying. 
We saw in Esther the Jews fast when Haman threatened extermination again, and they began to cry out and fast. And in Jonah chapter 3, Nineveh fasted after Jonah's sermon to them of repentance. So we see in the Old Testament, fasting has always included a sense of mourning or longing for. And Jesus was saying in, in a roundabout way, the disciples don't need to long for anything because I'm here. In the Old Testament pattern, fasting was, God, we need you. God, come to us. Come to our rescue. Come to our aid. And Jesus was beginning to say that God is here. My disciples don't need to fast. Now, if Jesus would have just stopped there, that conversation might have been a little more pleasant. But to remember, this is the passage where Jesus begins to paint people into a corner. So he answers their immediate question, and he answers their hidden question. Anybody ever asked you a question, but you know that's not the question they're asking? Right? Jesus is the master at this. They ask Jesus a question, and a lot of times the motives are ill. They're trying to trap Jesus or get Jesus to say something, and Jesus doesn't miss a beat. He answers their question in such a way that confounds them. And so Jesus answers their initial question, but their hidden question is really, Jesus, who do you think you are? That's what they're really asking. They're my, we are fasting. John's disciples fast. How come your people don't fast? Who do you think you are? Jesus answers this hidden question. Pick up with me in verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine onto old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst, the skins and the wine is lost, as well as the wineskins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Now, this may seem really awkward for us because most of us don't make our own wine. Why stop? We might. Like this whole craft brewer, microbrew thing, like that's a thing now. Like people probably do make their own wine now, right? Um, but most of us don't know how it's made, right? We follow the YouTube tutorial and we just do what it tells us to do. So this may not make a whole lot of sense to the modern day reader. So let me unpack it for us. So in the old days, they would take the grapes and they would add in the barley and all the other things to, to ferment it and season it. And they would put it in a, in a big bag of animal skin. Now, during the fermentation process, the gas expands. That's what kind of gives it the alcoholic taste and texture. And it begins to expand and it stretches the skins as it ferments. And at the end of the fermentation process, you end up with not just grape juice, but wine. But here's the problem. If you wanted to repeat that process, do you think you could use that old wineskin that's already been stretched out? No. You got to use a new wineskin. Why? Because that's already reached its limit. It's already done all that it can do. And so if you put new wine to make again in an old wineskin that's already been stretched, it will burst and destroy the old wineskin. So is Jesus giving a tutorial on wine? What do you think Jesus is doing here? Jesus is saying that in order for new wine to come, the old wineskins must go away. See, Jesus is not just coming as a Messiah. He's coming as a king. And he's coming as a new king over a new kingdom that has a different way to operate in this world. See, the Jews knew, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And then you'll be accepted by God. Circumcision and Sabbath and the ceremonial feast. That's how you're accepted before God. And Jesus is saying, nope, there's a new wine coming. Are you ready to receive it is what he's asking. Or are you trying to fit me into your traditional system? That's not going to work. One commentator put it this way. There is two ways to destroy something. If you had an acorn, you can do two ways to destroy it. One, you could bang it with a hammer and that would destroy the acorn. Or you can plant it in the ground and bear forth an oak tree. Either way, the acorn is destroyed. What's the difference? This is what Jesus came to do. This is what new wine is, y'all. It's the new way to live in the Christian life. 
The old way of do this, do that, and then you're right before God, that's the old wine with an old wineskin. Jesus is pouring a new wine into new wineskin. Are we ready for it? Are we ready to receive that God wants to do something new? This is what the Christian life should look like. Not a legalistic smashing of our old lives, thinking that we can earn favor with God by being good enough, but a gradual day-by-day of fulfilling our desires and longings and hopes in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. So let me land the plane here, get really practical. Some of us have been frustrated in our spiritual walk because we want new wine, but we are very attached to our old wine skins. That's all right. I'm going to start preaching in a second. See, some of us want God to do something new, God to do something big, God to do something different in the lives, but we've been praying the same, reading the same, talking the same, living the same, spending our money the same. And we're like, oh, God, why won't you do something different in my life? And yet we want God to do something different. And what I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about a works-based righteousness. I'm talking about opening your hand, letting go of the old stuff so that God can put something new in. I was talking with even Pastor Jake this morning about the Christian life. And it's becoming this Christian life is funny, y'all. The more mature you get in your Christian faith, you realize that some stuff is sin that isn't sin. And some stuff is sin for you that isn't sin for anybody else. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Because God begins to demand more of you that maybe he doesn't demand from everyone else. Maybe it's okay for them to watch that show and do that thing and go to that place with those people. But God has demanded more from you. But you want to hold on to the old wineskin. You want to hold on to the person that you used to be. And then frustrated at God that he's not doing something new in your life. Where do we see this in scripture? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and being transformed to the same image from glory to what? Glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. What does glory to glory mean? It means we're getting closer and closer to looking like Jesus. We're getting closer and closer to sounding like Jesus. We're getting closer and closer to loving the things that Jesus loves. And it's a gradual process. Remember I talked about those two ways to destroy an acorn? The legalism way hits you with the hammer and says, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. These people are in, those people are out. But planting it in our hearts, planting the word of God in our hearts produces this gradual change where the acorn is destroyed because the law is fulfilled in Jesus. And so we don't walk in bondage to the law. We walk in freedom to obey the law. Because law isn't evil, but it doesn't save either. And so Jesus begins to kind of ruffle the feathers of this new wineskin. Jesus wasn't going to stop there because one of the most sacred laws in all of Jewish life was the Sabbath. So Jesus just went after fasting. Now he's going to go after the Sabbath next. He's going to actually ascribe a new purpose to the Sabbath. Read for me verses 23 through 28. He had just talked about the new wineskins. Then on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. So they're walking through a field, literally just picking up grains and putting it in their mouth and eating it. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? How we entered the house of God in the time of Abithar the priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And also gave some to his companions. 
Then he told them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what's happening? So some of you may see at verse 24 and say, okay, these disciples are stealing green out of somebody's field because that's exactly what they're doing. They're just walking through somebody's field and just randomly picking fruit. But in Deuteronomy, actually, God gives a provision for those traveling and says, hey, if you're traveling, you can go through anybody's field and take what you need to eat. You can't harvest it. You can't put it in a bag, but you can take what you need to eat. So that was actually biblical for the disciples to walk through. The problem was they were doing it on the Sabbath. And that was seen as harvesting, and so you can't harvest on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath laws that was, was given after Exodus, a little background, because the Sabbath day may not be native to us. And so Moses prohibited about five things, starting a, starting a fire, cooking, gathering fuel, carrying burdens, or transacting business. Those were the things prohibited specifically in the Torah. Now, Jewish tradition added about 39 total things that Jews could not do on the Sabbath. They added laws to the law so that we wouldn't break the laws. The religious leaders had turned Sabbath into a burden to the people rather than its original purpose, y'all. What's the point of the Sabbath? We just talked about fasting and how that's a little different than we thought it was. What about Sabbath? Now, if you use it in church context, that's like a Christian word for vacation, right? I just need to take a Sabbath. Like, no, I mean, you just need to take some time off, right? So it's like Christianese for vacation. But what's the Sabbath? Have we wrestled through what it was? Some, most people think that Sabbath is about resting, and it's not. It's about remembering. Sabbath is not about resting. It's about remembering Exodus 31, 13. Tell the Israelites, you must obey, observe my Sabbaths. Why? For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generation so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you or who sets you aside for a special work. So it was a day of stopping. We're going to stop gathering food. We're going to stop doing business so that we can realize that God is the creator of my life, that God is the sustainer of my life. It's a day to remember that, you, that God is God and you are not. It's a day to remember who God is and who you are. It's a day of worship, a day of faith, a day of prayer. It's a day where we, they don't make any money. They're not able to work in the fields. And so what do they eat that day if they didn't store anything? They don't eat nothing. It's a day of fasting. What if you need to transact business to pay, a, to pay an expense or pay a bill? That's not allowed. And so you have to trust that the Lord will provide. It's a day of remembering God is God. But the Jewish leaders had turned it into a day where not the law serves man, but the man serves the law. Mark 22, 27. Read again with me. Then he said, Jesus, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Now, I want you to zoom in here because we're going to come back to this point in just a second. This is going to be a key point in the rest of this passage, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, once again, if Jesus would have just stopped there, maybe he would have been okay. Just like the fasting conversation. If he would have just stopped that, hey, it's not time to fast now, maybe he would have been okay. But no, Jesus is going to twist the knife a little bit. And he keeps going. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, 
He was grieved at their hardness of hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Pause there for a second. This is a critical passage in the book of Mark. Why was Jesus so mad at the Pharisees? Why was Jesus grieved in his spirit so deeply by this passage? You see, the religious leaders had taken the law of God, which was good and perfect and a means of grace to the nation of Israel. And they were perverting the law to make it a burden and a source of judgment and elitism and arrogance. Y'all, this is what happens when we separate the truth of God from the heart of God. Now, it's not a clear distinction because we know, we get, we know the heart of God from the word of God, but I'm using this as a, just an easy metaphor that when we separate the truth of God, what God says from why God said it. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read something to you. It's a long quote, just slightly edited, but I'm going to read this whole thing to you. Remember that you are secure in Christ. Turn away from your sin, not because it is required for your salvation, for nobody saves Christ can merit heaven based on his own works, but rather out of gratitude for the gift of salvation that your God has given you. Always remember that it is God who is keeping you alive and in faith. All sin stems from the arrogant belief that one does not need God. Satan was so prideful that he actually truly believed that he, a created being, could overthrow the ancient of days, the creator of all in existence. Satan inspired this rebellion among humanity. Christ alone is the only source of life. Know that you are saved in Christ and nothing, not death, nor torture, nor sin, can steal your soul away from God. Who wrote that? Take a guess in your mind. Who wrote that? We would affirm and say yes and amen to everything that was there. This could have easily been a Piper or a MacArthur or an Owens or an Edwards. But no, the man who wrote this statement was a 19-year-old John Ernest. He wrote it shortly before he walked into a California synagogue and murdered one woman and wounded three others on April 27th of this year. He was a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church so conservative that even regular Presbyterians aren't conservative enough. A man who espoused and spouted beautifully biblical doctrine, and yet that doctrine didn't change it affected his heart when he walked into a synagogue and murdered people. How do we get there, y'all? How does a man who seems to know so much about what God says be so callous to the point of murdering others? This is what happens when you separate the word of God from the heart of God. Let me prove it to you in Scripture, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the what? More important matters of the law. Who has weightier matters of the law? Who has that in their Bibles? Weightier matters, anybody? See? ESV, come on. The weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And look what he says here at the end. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. You don't have to choose between the truth of God and the heart of God. You don't have to choose between being faithful to the Bible and loving your neighbor. 
I'm almost hesitant to bring it up because it's been so overwhelmed with us, but right now in our culture, the abortion debate is, is on everybody's timeline. And the struggle has been, no, we want to love people. No, we want to be faithful to the truth. When did that become an either-or situation? When did God make you choose between loving people and loving him? The book of 1 John says you can't do either without doing the other. And this was the guilt of the Pharisees. They lifted up the law of God, not to lift up God, but so they could rule over others. They could bind people in bondage to the law. And Jesus was coming to disrupt that order. And they saw it. Y'all, this is in all of our hearts, to see some laws of God as more important than others, to see some issues as bigger than others. Y'all, we have got to find a way to do both. If we are going to have a faithful Christian witness in this world, we have got to find a way to do both. Because that's the only gospel Jesus preached. It's a, true, it's a, it's a message that saves people's souls and heals their bodies. That gives them truth and feeds them multiple times. We don't have to choose, y'all. Don't let the world make us choose. Don't let the world make us choose a side. We are on God's side. And sometimes that puts us for you. Sometimes that puts us over here. Sometimes that puts us over here. But we have no other allegiance than Christ our King. And the Jews couldn't do it. They couldn't see it. They were so enmeshed in this system of religious rules and regulations. They were so tied to the system. It gave them power and prestige that they couldn't see it. But they got what Jesus was doing. They got what Jesus was doing even before the disciples got it. How do I know this? Because look what happens in verse 5 and 6. So Jesus is grieved after looking around at them with anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Look what verse 6 says. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Why did the Pharisees, why was this the tipping point? Jesus had healed people before. Matter of fact, his whole ministry up to this point had been healing and casting out demons and, and preaching truth. And they had, by and large, just let it go. They had been frustrated but not confounded. Remember, uh, Pastor Jake preached in Mark chapter 2, verses 8 and 11. There was a man who was lowered down through the ceiling. Y'all remember that? And what did Jesus say to that man? Your sins are forgiven. And when they said, who are you to forgive sins? He says, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Pick up your mat and walk. But check this out, y'all. Jesus claimed to forgive sins. And they just let that go. No plot to kill him. No plot to, to capture him. The greatest of heresies didn't move them, didn't provoke them. What provoked them this time? A healing of a hand seems a small thing compared to saying your sins are forgiven. If you said that today, you'd get kicked out of the church. So what provoked them this time is because they begin to see that Jesus wasn't just healing people. He was establishing a new kingdom with a new order, and they caught it for the first time. They caught a glimpse, and he was talking about fasting. Like, well, okay, fasting. Now you're talking about a new way to fast. Okay, a new way. To, now you're talking about this new wine thing. Okay, I'm, it's a little troubling, but I'm going to let it go. But now you're talking about the Sabbath and how you and Lord even on the Sabbath and you begin to do healing and miracles. Okay, he's not just some lunatic out here. He's not just some miracle worker, charlatan. No, he's here to burn this thing down. And they saw it, y'all. 
They saw the plan that Jesus didn't just come to accommodate people. He didn't come to just assimilate what was happening. No, he came to establish a new kingdom of royal priests. The status quo was not acceptable to Jesus Christ. The status quo was not acceptable. In Christianity, we don't use physical violence to bring change. We don't use violence or coercion. We're not a standing army physically fighting this world. But the Pharisees knew that they were trouble because why? Y'all, Christianity is at its most dangerous when biblical teaching leads to personal transformation. Because that's what turns the world upside down. When biblical teaching meets personal transformation, that's what begins to change how this city looks. And the, and the Pharisees, they got it. They said, okay, he's doing something more than just healing people. He's establishing a new order, a new kingdom with himself as a king. And, of course, that threatened their power. John eleven forty seven and 48. John makes it a little more plain why the leading religious leaders were so angry at Jesus. It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling kind of body of Jews, and were saying, what are we going to do since this man, Jesus, is doing many signs? Once again, listen, the signs aren't the problem. Listen to what they say next. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What were the Pharisees worried about, y'all? Their power. There's an easy make America great again comment here. I'm not going to make it. They were worried about protecting their nation. They were worried about protecting their power, their place in the world. Even though they knew that this world wasn't right, they had found a comfort in it. They found a little power in it. And they were willing to kill Jesus to preserve it. Now, we not, may not be guilty of physically nailing Jesus to the cross, but we're all guilty of this. We're all guilty of choosing comfort over obedience. We're all guilty of choosing to maintain power and status over faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. We're all guilty of this. This is not a them message. This is a us message, y'all. There's nobody here who shouldn't be here. Everybody who God wants to hear this is here right now. This is an us problem. We do this even in the church, even people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, even people who are committed to this church and, and believe that we are God's family on mission. We believe these things. The temptation is to choose to just a tepid obedience, kind of a lukewarm Christianity. Pastor Jake said a, a sedentary Christianity. A Christianity just kind of sits down and stays where it's at. And then we demonize others who are doing things differently. Y'all, the point of this passage is Jesus didn't come to make anything better. Jesus came to tear it all down and build it up new again in him. Now, before we talk about the, the sociopolitical implications of that, it has to start with us. Is that true of you? I'm talking to Christians right now. Is that true of your life? Did Jesus tear down your life and is he rebuilding it brick by brick? Or do you pretty much look the same? Pretty much like the same music, pretty much go to the same places, pretty much have the same friends. Do things pretty much seem the same, just a little less cursing, a little less whatever, and now maybe your Sunday morning's a little different because you're here? Is Jesus an accessory to your life, or did he really demolish it and rebuild it by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's uncomfortable, y'all, because that means new. That means starting over. 
That means I can't do what I want to do. That means I don't get the final say even in my own life. That means I live for him. Because Jesus is not a, a, a jetpack on, the, on the, my own goals or where I want to go. I don't just pray for God to bless my life. No, I pray for God to destroy my life and let me find life in him. And this is why Jesus was killed, y'all. This is for the first time the Pharisees realized he wasn't just some divine, weird miracle worker. He wasn't just a crazy man claiming to be God. No, he really was God, and he was going after the hearts of people. And that's where the change starts. That's where the change, I want to see North Charleston be at a better place, y'all. I really do. I pray for it every week. I want to see this world and this country be a better place. I really do. I pray for it and I work for it by the power of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I can't, I can't think for one second that there's more work out there than there is in here in my own heart. I can't think for one second that out there is worse and I've got it pretty much figured out. No, we've got to constantly remind ourselves that we need Jesus to wreck us regularly. To pull down idols in our life. Pull down idols that we don't even know we have now. What's more beautiful than Jesus? What's more deserving of your time, your efforts, your affections, your thoughts than Jesus? Jesus came to establish a new kingdom, but I use this word new, but is this really new? You know, it's like me saying I bought a new car. It's not new, 2019 new, it's just new to me, right? A new way to fast, this wasn't a new way of fasting, this is what fasting was supposed to be. A new way to worship, a new, none, none of these things are new. A new Messiah, no, this is what was promised since the beginning, since Genesis chapter 1, when the snake will bite the heel, but the heel will crush the head. This was the plan all along. It's just new to us, because now the veil has been pulled back, and we begin to see, oh, this was the plan. The Jews thought that the, Jesus, the Messiah was going to come in power, in political power. He's like, nope, I'm going to come born in a barn, preaching a gospel of good news and repentance and faith. And so my prayer for us as believers is that we would tear down the idols in our hearts, that we would be new wineskins ready for the new wine of God's kingdom to be poured into. And for the unbelievers among us, let me say this. Very little of this applies to you except for this, that the message of Jesus is repent and believe. All the obedience and faith comes after salvation. All the obedience and faith comes after salvation. God doesn't want you to perform any better than you are right now in order to be accepted by him. Your next step is to repent and believe. Then comes day by day, growing from glory to glory for his glory and for the good of the city. Let's live today in this new kingdom. Let me pray for us.